You're listening to the Ruby on Rails podcast. You're listening to episode 465, and I'm your co-host, Brittany Martin. And I'm your co-host, Brian Mariani. Alex Gikulescu is the co-founder of Workforce.com, a workforce management product that helps with scheduling, attendance, payroll, and HR for businesses with frontline staff. Workforce.com has been running Ruby on Rails for over 10 years. Welcome to the Ruby on Rails podcast, Alex. Thanks. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. So Alex, I'm going to do a duo for you today. I am very interested in what your developer origin story is and then your founder origin story. Sure. So I started, I guess, programming when I was in university. But the first time I ever wrote any code was kind of first year, first programming course of a computer science degree. I guess I really liked it and sort of it resonated with me. And I got a job out of uni for about a year. And after working in the industry for about a year, my roommates sort of encouraged me to start a business with them. And I've been reading about Ruby and about Ruby on Rails around 2011. And so I wanted an excuse to learn Rails. And so I thought I would go and make this like app just to make them shut up. And I would learn Rails in the process. And then they'd stop bugging me about going into business with them. And I guess that we're still using that code base today. So it kind of worked out well. And that was how I learned Rails in the process. That's incredible. So not only did you start a business, but you were learning Ruby on Rails in the process of starting that business? And luckily, all that code has been rewritten a lot of times. <laughs> but yeah, it was all kind of learning it from scratch and tutorials. And I guess there weren't so many podcasts around then, but whatever was online to make it easier. Do you happen to remember what version of Rails it was started on? Yeah, 3.2. Okay, okay. That, that's I a pretty solid that time to be clear. starting. Nothing too crazy in 3.2. Yeah. I mean, it's post-MERB, but still, you weren't doing the two to three jump. So I think right. 3.2 is pretty admirable. The annoying thing is there was a lot of people online complaining about MERB. And I was like, I don't know what this is, but it sounds bad. <laughs> oh, no. But yeah, it was, it was, now that I know a little bit more, it was nice to miss all that sort of stuff. And sort of everything was a bit smoother by the time I got involved. Okay. So you are the co-founder of Workforce.com. So you learned Ruby on Rails and you started Workforce.com at the same time. How has your role at the company evolved over the last 10 years? So there was four of us that started it and I was the only technical one. So I guess is why they were bugging me so much. For a long time, I was kind of the only developer and I was the CTO and I sort of did a lot of team management and team building and kind of everything else that comes with growing a company. Where I handed over the CTO role about once, about five years ago, and then that didn't really work out. And I mm. did it again for five more years and handed it over to someone else who's actually doing a pretty good job of it now in October last year. So now I'm kind of developer at large is maybe the best title. We're about 150 people now. So it's kind of a bit of a bigger company than I ever really expected. And what I, is I a day of, in the life for you then? Well, I found that management wasn't really for me and I didn't like it so much. And I think what I really wanted to do is spend more time writing code. I think this is probably a little bit dramatic because like at its worst, I was probably spending half my time writing code. To me, that sounded awful. But when I went and talked to other people with the same role, they were like, that's a lot of time writing code. But anyway, so now these days, I'm just working on new products and sort of trying to figure out how we can expand our product suite and and launch in new countries and a few other things like that. That's awesome. And these new products that you're writing, are you continuing to stick with Ruby on Rails? Oh, of course. Well, We'd love to hear it. Podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, listeners, the reason that Alex is on the show today is because he reached out to me and Brian with a really strong pitch 
about a topic that he wanted to bring onto the show today. And this is just a reminder to you all that we want to get those strong pitches. We want to have as many guests on the show as possible, but it makes it so much easier when you come at us with an interesting take, some experience that you want to share. It made it very clear why we wanted to bring Alex onto the show today. And the reason is that Alex reached out to talk to us about junior hiring, which you're all going to think to yourself, yes, we've been talking about junior hiring for the last couple of years. This is a beaten down topic. We should be hiring juniors. But on the flip side, Alex wrote a blog post on why companies do not hire juniors, which I think he made some really solid points. And so, of course, wanted to add Brian onto the call today just because he has an interesting take on it as well. So, Alex, we're going to lead this discussion off by asking you, what led you to write that blog post to begin with? Yeah, I think what I thought was interesting was like, you go and watch conference talks about this topic or read Twitter conversations about it and so on. And I mean, everyone universally agrees that we should hire more juniors, but I felt like what was kind of lacking was I didn't see much perspective on, okay, well, if it's such an agreed truce, then why isn't it happening? And I felt like, well, we've hired a lot of juniors in our time. We started out of university, we hired all our friends, and then we just kept on going with that approach of hiring graduates. But it's not easy. And As we've gotten a bit more mature as a company and have more money to spend, we've also hired more senior people as well. And it's kind of, I think I've kind of understood why it's much easier and more tempting just to skip straight to that point if you have the cash. My hope was that by explaining from my perspective why I think it's not like a slam dunk, hire a junior and all your problems will go away sort of situation, that maybe the conversation could get more nuanced, which I think would hopefully lead to more juniors being hired over the long term. Yeah, for sure. For one, Alex really likes the blog post and with your permission, would be happy to share it with some of the clients that I talk to for sure, because it will get into some of the sort of hows and whys hiring juniors can work, which I found really hit home on a lot of those points. To sort of just backtrack for a second, could you just get the listeners up to speed on your experience as a hiring manager? May I start with the numbers? Workforce.com today employs about 150 people globally. Of those, I think around 45 are in product development. So it's engineering, product management, design, ops, kind of the whole thing. I think my guess would be that about two thirds of those, it's this is their first job as a developer. So either coming out of university or coming out of a boot camp or something along those lines, or maybe they had an internship, but it's their first substantial job. So I guess my credential to talk on this is that while we're not Shopify sites, but we have hired a lot of juniors over the years and many of them have gone on to be really successful either inside of our company or doing their own thing. And until recently, I interviewed every technical hire that we made, either as a first interview or as a final one. So I've kind of been involved in most of those. Gosh, I've seen it myself. I mean, if you could figure out how to effectively bring on the juniors, I mean, they're such a great investment because it does not take long for them to ramp up and oftentimes be a very big part of the organization. Okay, that being said, one of the points in the blog post that I found was great and hoping you can elaborate on a little bit more is you make the point that remote training is too hard. Like a lot of people just think it's too hard to bring juniors up to speed. Can you explain more about that? So I think there's kind of two versions of the world. There's the pre-COVID world and then the current world. I guess there was like the temporary world. Pre-COVID, in my opinion, most companies were really bad at working remotely. And it wasn't a thing that most companies did natively. There's always a few exceptions, but it wasn't considered the norm, right? And then today kind of is. And so 
when you go and look at job postings, and Brian, you probably know more about this than I do, so correct me if I'm wrong. The impression I get is the options are either this job is fully remote, which usually means this job is fully remote if you live in the US or Canada, or this job is hybrid, which is, you know, you're in an office, but then you don't have to go into the office every day or very often at all sometimes. And I think what's happened is like, we've kind of thrown out hundreds of years of the idea of how apprenticeships works and how humans learn from each other by osmosis, basically. And we've just kind of replaced all of that with like, on your first day, you log into Slack and someone sends you some docs. And then hopefully you kind of learn what you're doing from there. I think the thing about that, that I actually, a friend of mine sort of sent me this note after I wrote this post was what's even worse is we've put this enormous responsibility to teach in a medium that no one's very familiar and good at on people who are not professional educators. It's like, we have some really great senior developers in our company, but no one's ever taught them how to teach people anything. They haven't been taught how to educate, let alone how to educate over text, over a Slack chat, over the internet to someone in a different time zone. So we've just basically like, I think a lot of these remote work structures have many benefits for sure. But when it comes to training people, it's really setting ourselves up to failure. I think because it's so recent, this whole experiment's only been going on for a few years effectively. And the data hasn't come through to prove this, but I'm pretty confident it's the case. And I mean, if you're a senior developer, remote work's the best thing that's ever happened to you, most likely. You've got way more flexibility in your life. You can work more flexible hours. You can take a job from anywhere. So your ability to earn has gone up. And so I think that's dominating the discourse, but no one is really giving a shit about people who have just graduated and who don't know anything yet and who aren't being trained by people who don't know how to teach. And the context for this, for those who haven't read the post, is that at Workforce, we've always run an office-first culture. So we operate in three countries, Australia, the US, and the UK, and in each of those places, we have an office. And everyone goes into the office. We try and get everyone to go into the office every day. It kind of varies a bit by the role, but broadly speaking, it's assumed that you are in the office and that has made it much easier to train people. Yeah, I love that. And you're right, by the way, the two jobs that we tend to field these days are definitely fully remote or hybrid. We have yet to see the first client or even really find anywhere the first client that requires you to be on site every day. Thanks to Honey Badger, I have all kinds of sources to back what I'm about to say next. The number one reason startups fail is that they run out of money. There are so many ways for startups to lose money. Downtime certainly should not be one of them. Recent studies found that downtime can cost $427 per minute for small businesses and up to $9,000 per minute for medium-sized businesses. That's every single minute that you're down. A monthly subscription with Honey Badger helps you prevent costly downtime by giving you all the monitoring you need in one easy-to-use platform so you can quickly understand what's going on and how to fix it, which of course helps you stay in business. Best of all, Honey Badger is free for small teams and setup takes as little as five minutes. Get started today at honeybadger.io. That is honeybadger.io. Thanks to Honey Badger for supporting the show. I will say just slightly off topic, there has been a little bit of a trend toward just more hybrid companies. You know, just a little more recently for sure. Again, you can kind of come and go as you please, but you know, to kind of be in the area is important. But some of that is going to lead to your point, being able to have some of those juniors come in and learn that way, the more traditional way works. And your blog post was good because you kind of touched on some of the reasons that if you count all of the times there's actual overlap between the senior and the junior, like it can take a while to ramp someone up, but that is a great way to do it. I think you also touched on maybe just finding the right type.
type of role for that junior to slot into to get their feet under them, correct? Yeah. Something that we've started doing more recently that's worked really well is back in the day, we used to just have one job title, which was a developer. And it would be a pretty wide variety of tasks that like any startup, you're kind of doing whatever is needed. Something we've done more recently that's worked really well was we've had a role called a support engineer. And this is in a SaaS context. There's a fair bit of customer support and it can get kind of complicated because that product is like a legally based product that's fairly complicated. And so this role is an entry-level role. It's for people who've done a coding bootcamp or a university degree, but kind of want a little bit more time to get more comfortable with coding, but also are happy to do customer support and sort of answering support tickets and investigating things. And so it ends up being about 50% writing code and 50% helping people with support issues or doing investigations or whatever it happens to be. And I think the thing that that's worked really well because it's taken a lot of pressure off this like, you started as a developer and you need to really prove your ability to build features right away, which I think for a junior is also creating a lot of pressure. It's more generally, we found that as we've been able to grow as a company and create a bigger variety of roles, we've been able to give people a lot more ability to, hit the, to start their career off in a successful sort of way. I want to talk about that more because I am one of those rare people who came through the coding boot camps that went straight to a support engineer role. And so that was really successful for me, but I was lucky because I was in San Francisco and I was compensated at the same rate as a junior developer who was working on features. I guess it's a twofold question. Should a junior developer and a support engineer be making the same amount of money? And should there be a pathway for a support engineer to move elsewhere in the company? Or is that viewed as like a temporary position until you get your feet underneath you? To be honest, I actually don't know off the top of my head what we pay these roles in each country at the moment. Don't feel as the support engineer would get paid a little bit less than a junior developer, but not significantly less. Okay. I don't really have a strong position. I don't think it should be like half the wage or anything like that, but mm-hmm. I don't really have a strong view on exactly where it should be. But I think your other question is more interesting. So what we've found is that there's kind of two pathways to kind of emerge. And one is people who really like support engineering and they like talking to customers all the time. It's basically like being a professional bug fixer. I actually think sounds really fun sometimes. And so like we create a pathway for people to sort of specialize in that area. And as you get more experienced at it, pay sort of tends to increase pretty quickly. And then there's the other path that I think people assume, that most people assume is always there, which is going and becoming a traditional product or feature developer. But the important thing is to realize that it's not like there's only one path. It's kind of, as a company, it's much better for us to have some senior support engineers as well because they develop so much domain expertise. But obviously, they also do really well as developers, again, because they understand the product so well and they've got a lot of customer expertise and you don't really need to teach them all that the way you do with someone who starts off in a product team. I agree. So either way, it's a great starting point, I think. I'm glad at least one other person's done it. And it's certainly better than not getting a junior role at all because we know how hard it is right now. And the worst possible thing that could happen is that you come out of a coding boot camp and you don't get a role that enables you to keep growing and learning. There is a responsibility on the developer to be learning on the off hours. But if you take a role that has nothing to do with what you've just learned, it's really hard to continue to enrich your skills to do that. And so for me, like I was in servers, I was diagnosing Ruby on Rails performance issues. It helped me become a better developer once I was actually writing features. Yeah. And a lot of the support engineers we hire have families or a bit older or changed careers and so forth. And so A, they bring a lot of life experience, which I found like when we're running a company full of university students was pretty helpful to have some real adults in the room. 
But also, it's all well and good to say that they need to teach themselves outside of hours, but it's kind of hard. And so I think everyone benefits from having these roles where they can learn at a more moderate pace, I guess. But making people work an extra 20 hours a week beyond their 40 hours just to actually get their foot in the door doesn't really seem right. They're just going to go do something else. I think it's probably what's going to happen a lot of the time. Yeah, that was great. That really stood out to me in the blog post. I just, I like the idea of that the support engineer. It just kind of felt like you're taking the steps into the pool as opposed to having to do a cannonball in the deep end, <laughs> you know, as a junior engineer. So that was great. It just, it speaks to the how, you know, how you can assimilate some of these engineers. And like you said, it's not the exact path for every junior engineer, but I thought that was a good one. And you touched on another topic just now and in your blog post when it comes to salaries for junior engineers. So I thought maybe we could chat about that. We could go back and forth on this a little bit because I have some data as well. But you mentioned that juniors are no longer inexpensive like they used to be. So maybe you could tell us a little bit more about you know the data collection you've done on that and just your overall vibes on that would be great. From what I've observed, which is just all internally, I mean, obviously there's lots of inflation at the moment. Everything's getting more expensive. Wages are going up. And this isn't like a last three months phenomenon, but this wages, wages always go up. What I observed when I went and tried to pull up as much data as I could from what we had internally is in general, it seemed like the entry-level wage that we paid for a junior and that we paid for a mid-level kind of were growing. But the difference between them was staying the same, even as both numbers were rising. If that doesn't make sense, there's a graph in the post which helps visualize it. But the point is that if the difference is the same, but the both numbers go up, that over time, the difference as a percentage decreases. And so effectively, a mid-level is getting paid less relative to a junior. And so the flip side of that is a junior costs more as the percentage of what a mid-level costs. And I think without necessarily having strong data on that, I think we kind of intuitively realized that, wow, these grads, when they're starting off, they're really asking for quite a lot of money. And like the ones who we've hired and have stuck around generally have totally earned it. But it's a risky thing, right? Hiring someone to their first job ever, particularly when you're a bootstrap company and you only have the money your customers give you. You don't want to throw it away on someone who doesn't perform. And that's always a risk. And so as that cost goes up, that people think about that more and it gets more scary to hire a junior effectively. I think that's probably one of the reasons we started doing support engineering because it was kind of a more safe to fail role. And also to your Brittany question earlier, the wages that were expected for that were a little bit lower. But I think mostly it was more that it was safe to fail. As wages have gone up, because the difference between them hasn't substantially changed, my gut feeling is that many companies have done the same, I guess, math that we've that I've subconsciously done and just been like, ah, like to take it to its extreme, it feels pretty risky to pay a fresh graduate a hundred grand. But you see people in some parts of the US asking for that. And it's just like, that's just not going to happen. When you could pay someone like who's had a job for five years. 50, 30, 40, 50K more, but get a much more certain outcome. Brian, I'd love to hear your data because I could just be totally wrong. No, you're totally right. It is just, it was interesting. I wanted to kind of hear from you, but that's what I've seen too. I feel like there's almost a little blending of salaries between juniors and mid-level. It's just, it's kind of surprising. And it's also tighter too. I also feel like the range really isn't that different. Mids certainly earn a little more, but the gap between mid and senior is far greater in most cases than the gap between junior to mid. So your point on that, I thought was spot on. But one thing that I thought might be kind of cool to hear you talk about a little bit more is kind of right at the bottom of your blog post was 
The reasons that juniors might want to be a little more flexible on their ask for that junior salary, because as I've talked about many times on this podcast, it really have to look at your career as a software engineer in terms of the big picture, not so much about today. And today, obviously, there's a lot of choppiness, especially in the U.S. market. But maybe you could speak to that a little bit, because I thought you brought some salient points at the bottom of why it's important to maybe show a little flexibility at the beginning. It could really help you get that foot in the door. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think you kind of traced it pretty well. And I was pretty hesitant to write about all this, because I just feel like it's a good way of making everyone hate you. But I do think it's true. Maybe... I don't know how high quality this example even is, but if you're interviewing fresh out of college and asking for a hundred grand at a non-top tier, the company that isn't a top tier company, it's just, why would anyone take that risk on you? It's a very difficult case to make, or at least I would personally find it very difficult to take that risk on anyone. And I think the thing that people don't realize is that hiring is a big risk, hiring juniors in particular, because you don't really have any way of knowing if they're going to really produce anything of value for quite a while. And even the really successful ones don't do anything substantially valuable for a long time because they're ramping up. I'm not sure how salient the points were, but really my only big insight on this was, I think if you have two candidates and they both seem pretty good and with juniors, it's kind of hard to tell the best from the second best, but one of them is willing to burn $5,000 a year less because they just want to get started. You're just always going to take that option, I think, as an employer. Obviously, if you take that argument too far, it's going to drive wages in the opposite direction, which I don't think is what people want. But I think it's worth people start entering the industry being aware of that because obviously you're better off earning something than you are not having a job at all. Hi, everyone. It's Brian, your co-host. I'd like to talk to you about something that is very near and dear to my heart, and that's the software consultancy I co-founded in 2001, Atlantis Technology. Some of the longtime listeners here may know Mirror was born out of Atlantis back in 2006 when we figured, let's try being Ruby engineers who recruit Ruby engineers. It was a unique idea that clicked and now has become my life's work. But while I've been growing Mirror for the past 15 years, Atlantis has continued to grow as well. Atlantis still specializes in Ruby on Rails software development and collaborates on some pretty meaningful projects. Here are a couple of my favorites an interactive education tool to help elementary school students learn how to read. How cool is that, right? Second is a SaaS application for clinics and hospitals to treat patients remotely. So my point is the work we do is really meaningful and impactful to others. But the best part is the work gets done by great developers who also happen to be great people. Atlantis has always attracted egoless, empathetic engineers who love working together and we are actively seeking more remote engineers to help build the future for our clients. While I'm not doing the actual recruiting for Atlantis myself, since my time is so focused on Mirror clients, it'd be my privilege to connect you with our CTO and co-founder, John Collier, who after 19 years, I still describe as one of the most relentlessly positive human beings I know. If you'd like to meet John and hear more about working at Atlantis, just drop me an email at brian at mirrorplacement.com and I'll make an intro or apply directly at atlantistech.com. We'll put a link in the show notes. Now, this is why we wanted to have you on the show, Alex, because certainly nobody's going to hate you for your opinions here, because some of them are really quite true and things that I've experienced. And the problem is that we don't all universally tackle this issue in the same way, and then we cause discrepancies. 
For me, the issue has always been promoting juniors. I absolutely love to promote juniors, but the problem is that you will offer a reasonable range for a junior developer and they're doing a good job, like a solid job. But within six months, they think that they're ready to get promoted and that unfortunately you're still not at that mid-level. And we haven't really normalized getting pay bumps without getting a title change, if that makes sense. And so one thing that I've seen that's been successful with junior engineers is starting them at a lower rate with an understanding that if they're doing a good job, they will just naturally get a pay bump over time as they continue to work there without them constantly questioning, am I a mid-level? Am I a mid-level? Because we can all agree here. Nobody really knows what that means. And you want to have a plan for your developers, but you don't want to hire junior developers that come in and they're immediately dissatisfied because their other bootcamp, you know, cohort is doing because you might see an engineer that's being compensated, let's say at 60K for a Ruby on Rails job, which would probably be viewed mid or low. And you might see another developer get like 100K, right? But they're actually writing C sharp and they're writing Angular JS, which has been deprecated. It's really hard to compare, if that makes sense. And that second developer might be one of three And that first junior might be one of 50 and they're receiving mentorship. And so it's trying to keep up with that as well, because nobody wants to hire a developer that comes in and is immediately dissatisfied with either their salary or their title. It's not a fun situation for anyone. So I'm from Brisbane in Australia, which is like the third biggest city, which makes it a small town. When I was last back there last year, there was kind of a joke going around where anyone who's been writing JavaScript for more than two years is now calling themselves a senior. Yeah. But the developers were telling this joke because they just realized that they had all the companies sort of, they, everyone agreed that this was ridiculous, but also true. Mm-hmm. So I think in smaller markets, that certainly is a thing. But I don't think anyone really benefits from it. Obviously, the people getting paid senior wages benefit in the short term, but I don't think it works out too well over the long run. Right. Um, And I want to go back to the thing that you were saying prior. I would argue that you are not a senior developer unless you're capable of mentoring junior developers, which I know in some ways is also a hot take. So like it would eliminate a lot of senior developers that I've worked with. I think, again, being capable of is kind of in the eye of the beholder. The people who have written two years of JavaScript also think they're pretty good at mentoring. Yes. But... I think to your point, something that I did a while ago that I thought was really helpful was we didn't have any really strict or really tight descriptions of what a junior is responsible for and a mid and so on. And I found that Basecamp open sources their handbook, which has all these titles. So I just copy and pasted all of them and changed the word Basecamp to workforce and then changed one or two other details. And now all our titles are defined. For the record, one of my team rewrote all of them about a year ago to make them much better. But I think just giving people those levels was really helpful because it kind of removes all these conversations of like, I think I'm a senior, but my boss thinks I'm a junior and let's like meet in the middle, which is not the correct answer at all. The hard thing with this is like some of the descriptions are a bit too prescriptive. So you'd see people be like, I made a pull request that configures RuboCop, so now I'm a senior, which was more of a mistake in how the titles were written rather than in them actually being a senior. But I think it was good in general that it gave some structure and it kind of laid a framework to keep improving the structure of this and being more clear with people about our understanding of what these titles mean. It's good to know too, like, are your engineers full stack or do they tend to be specialized in the front end or the back end? So one of the good things about this was that we were, people were having this conversation and everyone was giving each other different answers. By creating this, it was like, no, everyone is full stack. 
the expectations are very clear across the board. As a junior, if you just know part of the stack, that's fine. But to get to mid-level, you need to be comfortable across the whole stack. And then to get to senior, you need to specialize in some parts of it and be able to mentor across the whole stack and stuff like that. So, I kind of love that. Yeah, like That's a very stack. clear line that you've defined there. I it was like one of that the a better lot. parts of it. The rest <laughs> was much more vague. It was really good for designers too. So it was like, I'm a designer. Should I just be in Figma all day? No, designers need to implement their designs and then be able to write CSS. And then if you're a senior designer, but to become a senior, you should be able to write JavaScript and write stimulus controls and so on. So the technical side of that, I think, got way more clear as a result of this exercise, which everyone benefits from. So Alex, after everything we've described and talked about here about hiring juniors, you still continue to invest in them. Tell us why. Well, I didn't write this post because I think people shouldn't hire juniors. I wrote it because I think people should, but I think that if you don't understand the costs or the risks going in, you're just going to have a bad experience and never do it again. And we've learned all the hard lessons over 10 years. So now we are like really good at bringing on new people and mentoring them and training them up as long as they're willing to see things our way a little bit, which means like things like going into the office, not expecting a six figure salary on day one, being ready to work hard and learn and grow over the course of several years. And I said, my hope was that more people would sort of try it out and sort of be more clear about what matters to them as a company, but then also bring juniors along for that journey. Given all of the bootcamp graduates and juniors that I speak to over the years, I think that's sound advice. And I think by and large, most of these graduates have that perspective. But I think over the past, gosh, at least five, six, maybe even more years, people can want to you know, dive right into that high salary and expect everything to be very rosy right out of the gate. But it's definitely something to be said for getting your feet under you. And I just like your approach in your process to bring in our juniors. Thank you. Yeah, definitely hits for me. I feel like it would treat people really well if, if they were to kind of lend an ear to that. So Alex, you wrote that post a few months ago. That was in November of 2022. Has anything changed since then? Well, I suggested this question because I felt like if we did a whole podcast and didn't talk about AI, it would be unfair. <laughs> But I actually don't think anything has actually changed. I don't think anything has changed really, but I think perceptions have changed a lot. And so I think there's going to be a lot of hiring managers or CFOs, et cetera, who are like, why would we hire a junior to do the things that ChatGPT can do? And I think that's a very short-sighted view and probably not a very correct view in most cases. But if enough people believe it, it kind of becomes true sort of thing. So I think it's going to be harder to convince companies that they should bring in entry-level talent when the bar for like what non-human talent can do in terms of programming is going to keep going up probably quite quickly. It's such early days. We don't really have the answers for that. I just thought it was an interesting thing that like I wrote this post and a week later, this AI that could code perfectly was unleashed on the internet. Oh, yeah. And I mean, I we've already seen if a I was class entering into the industry, Rails. I'd be like, yeah, <laughs> right. How crazy is that? So if I was entering the industry now, I'd be getting pretty worried. And I guess if there are those people listening, my advice is like, I don't think that anything has actually changed for them. But I do sympathize because I can see how people who are not doing the hiring or who are sort of a bit distant from it could have an incorrect perception. And I guess it's just a matter of finding the companies that still want to invest in them and are willing to sort of make it work. I've always seen it as, you know, AI is going to enable us to automate things that people don't like doing. So like linting and like opening pull requests against security issues and things like that. It's not actually solving like the deep problems around 
we have this business problem. How do we solve it? That creativity sure. is not going to be yeah. erased by chat GPT. However, if candidates come in and they use chat GPT to create their resume, create their cover letter, I take that as innovation. Like you are choosing to spend your time on the things that you're good at. And if you want to use chat GPT to help you in those ways, I think that's great. I don't think we're at a point where anybody's doing their take home assignment by using chat GPT, but Hey, that'd be right around the horizon. Couldn't it? I agree with you. I think the problem is that a lot of companies also hire juniors to do tasks that no one likes. Yes. And so I think, why would they hire juniors at this point? But that creates opportunity for the companies that make better use of their people, I guess. Totally agreed. Well, as someone who is so invested in the Ruby on Rails community, which is awesome, congratulations for having a business that has been running on Rails for 10 years. What are your thoughts on the future of the Rails communities? I feel like we get more from the community than we give to it. So one of the things we've been trying to do internally is we've been trying to train more people on contributing to Rails. And shout out to Josh Young, one of our guys who's recently started getting some PRs merged. But I think people always say that Rails is dead in social effect. I just don't see it. I think it's, it seems to work pretty well and there's enough companies that run well on it that it's going to be around forever. Love that. How can listeners follow you and Workforce.com? Well, you can learn more about Workforce.com by going to Workforce.com <laughs> conveniently. <laughs> My last name is pretty long and unique. So if you Google it, you'll probably find me. And I'm hoping we can put a link to this blog post in the show notes. Absolutely. Subscribe from there. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Brian. It's always great to chat with you. I think this is an important topic. Like I said before, there's a ton of content out there talking about why you should be hiring juniors, but not a lot of content about why it's difficult. And so really we're hoping to achieve here today is spurn that conversation of talking about why it's hard because these tend to be topics that people are just thinking in the back of their head, but they're afraid to put out there. And so hopefully, you know, listeners, this is like kind of gotten your wheels spinning and helped you realize like how you can hire more juniors. And maybe these are conversations that you can bring up to HR and your boss. So Alex, appreciate it so much. Thank you. One more thing, if I could throw it out there, if there's anything else that we can share or open source or I mentioned the titles we wrote, but you should just use the Basecamp ones. But if there's anything else we can share, happy to share it out. Just send me an email. Love it. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Alex. Thanks, Brendy. Thanks, Ryan. It was fun. You've been listening to the Rupee on Rails podcast. Follow us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever fine podcasts are downloaded to stay in the loop on Ruby on Rails and open source software. While you're at it, please leave us a review. And thank you for listening.